The following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Apostle John recorded conditions that would exist within organized Christendom during what we've come to call the church age. Then when you come to chapter four, the scene and attention of John shifts from an earthly scene, what's going on down here upon planet earth within organized Christendom to a heavenly scene. And we read in chapter four and verse one of Revelation, John says, after this I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here. I will show you things, notice, which must be hereafter. Things that absolutely were going to happen after the end of the present church age in which you and I are now living. What's interesting, in chapters 4 and 5, John records the first thing that he witnessed as the Spirit of God, in essence, uh, showed him what's going on up in heaven. And what John saw was God the Father sitting upon a throne. But in God's hand was a sealed scroll. And that sealed scroll becomes the, the focus of attention in Revelation chapter 5. And uh, what, what happens, there's a question raised, who is worthy to take the scroll from God's hand and then the idea is to break the seals and open up the sealed scroll in order to read it. Who is worthy? And for a period of time, no one responded. And John began to weep because he began to think there's no one who's worthy of taking that sealed scroll and breaking its seals and opening up and reading it. Which says that to John, that sealed scroll has great significance. And if no one is able to take that and break its seals, open it up and read it, then dramatic things which God has scheduled for the future would not transpire. And so the question we have to address in the two sessions that I have privileged to be with you this morning and tomorrow morning is what is that sealed scroll and what is its significance? And there are two major things that shed some light to us on it. And the first significant thing is the context that we have here about that sealed scroll in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Several significant things in the context here of chapters 4 and 5. The first one is the holiness of God, the holiness of God. In chapter 4, verse 8, there are holy angels around the throne of God. And incessantly, day and night, they're crying out, holy, 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 incessantly emphasizing that one significant attribute of God that was their focus of attention, the holiness of God. The word holy in the Bible literally means divided. So to be holy is to be divided from other persons and things. Not necessarily divided geographically, but divided in the sense that you're different you're distinct, you're unique, in contrast with other persons and things. And that's what they're emphasizing here. God, you are totally unique. You're one of a kind. There's no one else like you. Why emphasizing that with regard to the sealed scroll? 
Well, well, we'll give you some background and we'll see the significance of it later on. When you read Ezekiel uh, chapter 28, you find out that after God created the holy angels in heaven, the most magnificent of all the angels that God created is described in Ezekiel 28 as the anointed cherub who covers, who was perfect in his ways from the day he was created till iniquity was found in him. That exalted angel, who apparently initially had the job of hovering over top of God's throne, covering God's throne there in heaven, that holy angel became consumed with pride and began to think he was greater and able to do than what he really was and was able to do. And God cast him out of his heaven, down to the lowest heaven, because of that sin of pride. Later, we read in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, that exalted angel, or English translations call him Lucifer, uh, God changed his name to Satan, which means enemy or adversary. He began to boast and said, I'm going to ascend back up into heaven. I'm going to set up my throne in heaven, and I will be like the most high God. This enemy, he became the great enemy of, of God, named Satan, which means enemy or adversary, he began to say, in essence, God, you're not one of a kind. You're not totally different. You're not unique. I can make myself just like you. That was an all-out attack upon the holiness of God and the fact that God is totally different, distinct, unique, in contrast with everyone and everything else. In contrast with that, when we come to Revelation 5, and in light of what Satan did, saying, I can make myself just like you, you're not holy, you're not one of a kind, God's angels are now emphasizing to God, you are holy, 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 holy. You alone are unique, one of a kind. There's no one else like you anywhere. All out attack, really, against Satan making his claim, I can make myself just like God. God's not holy, he's not unique, I can be just like him. The other thing that's emphasized in the context here surrounding the uh, sealed scroll is the emphasis of God's rule over the universe, God's rule over the universe. And that's emphasized in two ways. Number one, the word throne upon which God sits is uh, given 17 times. The word throne appears 17 times in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 emphasizing God's authority to rule. He's sitting upon the throne to rule. The other thing that emphasizes his rule over the universe are the two doxologies, one in chapter 4, verse 11, and the other one in chapter 5, verse 13. Those doxologies, both of them, assign to God the concept of power. Now, that's our English translation the word power in both of these doxologies. However, the Greek words translated power are not the same in these doxologies. There's one Greek word in the first doxology of chapter four. It's another Greek word in the doxology in chapter five. One of those words translated power refers to God's power to crush his enemies. God's power to crush his enemies. And the other word translated power in one of these doxologies is God's power to establish his rule or God's power to establish his dominion. Keep that in mind 
because that's going to shed significance on what the sealed scroll is all about in Revelation 4 and 5. God's power to crush his enemies, ultimately Satan and those who follow Satan, and then God's power to establish his dominion, his rule, wherever he, he desires to do so. Then the third thing that's emphasized in the context surrounding the sealed scroll is God's worthiness to possess this power to rule the universe. Why is God worthy to possess this power to rule the universe? Well, we're told in, in uh, verse 11 of chapter 4, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Here's why. Number one, you've created all things. Lord, you are worthy to exercise rule over the whole universe because you're the one who created the universe. You're the one that brought it into existence. And the second reason why he's worthy to possess that power, they say at the end of verse 11, for your pleasure they are and were created. They say another reason why God is worthy to exercise power of rule over the universe, not only because he created it, but in addition, he created all things for his own benefit and for his sovereign purposes. These are major things emphasized in this context. And then the final thing emphasized in this context is there's a redeemer. There's a redeemer who has completed his work of redemption, his work of redemption. And uh, this is emphasized in uh, several places in chapter 5, where the Redeemer appears as the lamb that was slain, the lamb that was slain, and in chapter 5, verse 9, the declaration of the effect that he is redeemed by his blood. He is redeemed by his blood. And in light of that, then they talk about the worthiness of the lamb, the worthiness of the lamb. In light of his redemptive work, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world is worthy to take the scroll, from God's hand. He's worthy to break the seals of that scroll. He's worthy to open that scroll, and of course the idea is to open it in order to read the content that's inside of it. And also, that we're told in the uh, second doxology, chapter five, verses 12 and 13, he is worthy to exercise God's ruling power on behalf of God, the Redeemer, is worthy to exercise God's ruling power over what God created for his honor and for his glory. So all these things that are emphasized in the context here of chapter four and five related to the sealed scroll, we'll see will have significance on what really is this sealed scroll and what is it about? Why is it so significant? Why is it so important for somebody worthy to take it from God the Father's hand? and break its seals and open it and read the content that's inside of it. Now, in order to even more clearly identify this, the significance of the sealed scroll, we have to look at a, a parallel analogy. There's a fascinating parallel analogy in the Bible between two things. The first thing is God's program of land redemption for the nation of Israel. God's program of land redemption for the nation of Israel. And the other aspect is God's program of earth redemption for mankind. So a parallel analogy that's presented in the Bible between 
God's program of land redemption for the nation of Israel and God's program of earth redemption for mankind. And because they are so parallel, they all emphasize the same principles of land or earth redemption, the same principles. The first parallel principle between them, first of all, for Israel, God's program of land redemption for Israel, the first principle is that the land of Israel belonged to God. The owner of the land of Israel is God. The land of Israel belonged to God. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, Leviticus 25, verse 23, we have the record of God making this statement, the land is mine. In other words, I'm the owner of the land. That land belongs to me. Leviticus 25, verse 23, God declared the land is mine. And the implication is God is the king. He's the king of the universe. And as the king, he owns the land of Israel. He's the owner of it. Nobody else is. And he had the right to rule and dispense the land for his own benefit and in accord with his own sovereign purposes. Just as was said, you're worthy, you are worthy as you sit on that throne to rule over the whole universe because you created it, therefore you own it, and you created it for your own sovereign purposes and your benefit. Well, God was saying this to the people of Israel, I'm the owner of the land that I'm placing you upon when I bring you out of Egypt and establish you in that land. I'm the owner of the land. I'm the king, I possess it, and I have the right to rule and dispense the land for my own benefit and in accord with my own sovereign purpose. Interestingly, by parallel analogy, when we come to God's program of earth redemption for mankind, you have the same principle, and the principle is that the earth, the whole earth belonged to God. Just as the land of Israel belonged to God, a relationship to the people of Israel, so the whole earth belongs to God, a relationship to all of mankind. And the scriptures indicate that because God created the earth and everything in it, because he's the one that created the earth and everything in it, he is its owner, and he is the sovereign king over all of planet earth and everything that's in it. And therefore, God has the right to rule and dispense the earth for his own benefit and in accord with his own sovereign purposes. Now, several scriptures indicate this. For example, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God clearly stated, all the earth is mine. Just as in Leviticus 25, it said to the people of Israel, the land is mine. Now, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God declared, all the earth is mine. I own it. It belongs to me. It's mine. Psalm 24, verse 1, we read, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Again, he's the owner of it. The earth is his, nobody else's, it's his earth. He created it. And then Psalm 47, verse seven, God is the king of all the earth. God is the king of all the earth. So you have this parallel analogy between God's owning the land of Israel He's the king over that land and the people of Israel. And on the other hand, God is the owner of planet Earth because he created planet Earth for his purposes and therefore he is the king over all the Earth. 
parallel analogy here between these two programs of ownership by God. One specifically for land for the nation of Israel, the other one specifically for the earth with regard to all of mankind. Then there's a second parallel principle between these two different programs God has. For his program of land redemption for Israel, the second principle is the principle of tenant possession. The principle of tenant possession. What do we mean by that? God gave his land of Israel to the people of Israel as a tenant possession inheritance forever. He gave to the people of Israel tenant possession of the land of Israel forever. In Genesis 17, verse 8, Genesis 17, verse 8, God said to Abraham, I give to you and to your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Now, the setup that he established here with the nation of Israel with regard to that land had this principle involved. The people of Israel were not to regard themselves as the owners and authorities over the land. The people of Israel were not to regard themselves as the owners and authorities over the land of Israel. Since God was the owner of the land, they were responsible to serve God as his representatives. And as his servant representatives, they were given the God-given responsibility to administer God's rule over the land of Israel for his benefit in accord with his sovereign purposes and in obedience to his commands. God was the owner. They were not the owner but he gave them tenant possession. And as his tenants living upon the land that he owns, they had the responsibility of serving God by administering his rule over that land exactly the way he wanted his rule to be administered over that particular land. And so interestingly, in Leviticus 25, the same chapter where God said the land is mine, in Leviticus 25, verse 55, God declared, the children of Israel are servants to me. The children of Israel are servants to me. What he's saying is, you're not the owner. I'm the owner. But I'm giving you tenant possession of the land, which says, you're to serve me. You've got my God-given responsibility placed upon you to administer my rule on my behalf as, as my representatives over this land of mine, exactly the way I want it to be administered. That's your responsibility as the tenant possessors of the land that I've granted to you as the people of Israel. Now, by parallel analogy, we have that same principle applied to God's program of earth redemption for mankind. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we read that after God completed the creation of the earth, and also created mankind, that God gave his earth to mankind as a tenant possession. God gave Adam, God gave Adam authority over the earth. What he was doing is he was setting up a tenant possession between him and mankind. And he's saying, I've created you to be my tenant possessors of my planet Earth that I've created. And as my tenant possessors, you have the responsibility of mankind of administering my rule 
over my earth exactly the way I want it to be administered over my earth. He gave man dominion over the earth and everything on it. Tended possession is what he was granting to mankind. Now, what happened in both the instances? In God's land program with Israel, he was setting up a theocracy as the form of government. A theocracy is a form of government which God is the king and he's the owner of, of his realm. But he appoints representatives who are responsible to him as the king to administer his rule over that realm exactly the way God wants it to be administered. And so when God gave Israel tenant possession of the land of Israel, he was setting up a theocracy just with that specific nation. He's the king of the nation, and the people of Israel were his servants. He was giving them responsibility to administer his rule over that land the way he wanted administered. By analogy, when God gave man, God gave man dominion over the planet Earth. He was setting up now a worldwide theocracy, theocratic government, where God is the king over the whole earth. He was appointing his highest form of created beings, man, to be his representatives upon planet Earth. It was man's responsibility to administer God's rule over planet Earth exactly the way God wanted his rule to be administered over planet Earth. That was the whole principle. And so he was giving man tenant possession. We read in Psalm 115, verse 16. Psalm 115, verse 16. The earth he has given to the children of men. The earth he has given to the children of men to be his tenant possessors of planet earth. Now, again, the principle was this. Mankind was not to regard itself as the owner of planet earth. Man doesn't own the earth. Man didn't create the earth. God did. He owns it. So mankind was not to regard itself as the owner and authority of the earth. Since God was the owner of the earth, mankind was responsible to serve as his representative, administering God's rule over the earth for his benefit and accord with his sovereign purpose and in obedience with his commands. So God was the owner king. God is the owner king of the earth. Man is not. God is the owner king of the earth. And mankind was to be his tenant possessor of the earth. So here again, we have a theocracy arrangement between God and mankind from planet earth, just as was specifically with the nation of Israel, between God and the nation of Israel with regard to the land of Israel in Bible times. Then there's a third parallel principle involved between God's program of land redemption for Israel on the one hand and his program of earth redemption for mankind on the other hand. And that third principle is the principle of not losing tenant possession forever. The principle of not losing tenant possession forever. Let's take a look at that principle with regard to Israel and, the, and their land. Leviticus 25, verse 23. Leviticus 25, verse 23. This is what the people of Israel were told. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. In other words, you don't have the right to sell this land to somebody else because you're not the owner of the land, Israel. I'm the owner of the land. And so he says so very clearly, Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land 
is mine. If an Israelite who was given one certain area of that land as his tent of possession by God, if somehow that Israelite uh, became so poverty-stricken that he was forced to sell the portion of the land that was his tent of possession, he did not sell the ownership of the land. No Jew had the right of selling ownership of the portion of the land of Israel that was assigned to him. What he was to do was to sell his tenant possession to somebody else, but not the ownership of the land. He sold his tenant possession to somebody else. And uh, this was, he would sell this only for a temporary period of time. Temporary period of time. This was not a permanent selling of tenant possession. It was temporary. And if that person who, because he was poverty stricken, was forced to sell tenant possession to somebody else, if later on uh, things got better for him in his life and he raised the funds, then he could purchase back his tenant possession from the one to whom he had originally sold it. But if that didn't happen for, say, several decades, God set up a program with the land of Israel by which that tenant possession would come back to the original tenant possessor. Because God gave Israel a calendar divided into 50-year periods. And every 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. And God set it up that way here in Leviticus 25, that if the original tenant possessor lost tenant possession for a period of time, if he wasn't able to buy it back, that tenant possession, before the year of Jubilee, then on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all the land was to be given back to the original tenant possessors. God, this was God's way of setting up a principle for not losing tenant possession forever. So whoever had that tenant possession for a period of time, if he lost it because of bad circumstances in life, if he couldn't rebuy it back, the tenant possession, before the year of Jubilee. When the year of Jubilee would come, God required the one who had purchased the tenant possession from the original tenant possessor to turn it right back over to the original tenant possessor. This was God's way of guaranteeing that the principle of, of tenant possession would not be lost forever by the people of Israel on behalf of God. Now by parallel analogy, God set up the same principle with mankind with regard to the earth. And so the third principle here in God's program of earth redemption for mankind is the principle of not losing tenant possession forever. And God made it very clear that because God was the owner of the earth and still is, mankind did not have the right or authority to forfeit tenant possession or administration of God's earth to anyone else. Mankind did not have the right or the authority to forfeit tenant possession or administration of God's earth to anyone else. Now, when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we see that that third principle was violated. Genesis chapter 3, God's ultimate enemy, Satan, enters into the picture. And he comes after man the very beings that God appointed to be his tenant possessors of planet Earth. And he tries to tempt man to join him in his revolt against God. 
And we know the tragic story. Adam and Eve fell for it. And Adam, who had the ultimate authority here as tenant possessor by decree of God, defected from God, and whether he recognized or not, he was turning over temporarily tenant possession of the earth to God's enemy, Satan. God's enemy, Satan. And uh, there were tragic consequences of this taking place. Let me spell out some of the tragic consequences of man forfeiting tenant possession over to God's enemy, Satan, for planet Earth. The first tragic consequence was this. The theocracy was now lost. Remember again, a theocracy is a form of government in which God's rule is administered by a representative. God was the owner of the earth. Man was to be his representative, administering God's rule over the earth the way God wanted to be administered. But now that God's appointed tenant possessor, man, had defected from God, man had temporarily at least turned over tenant possession of God's planet earth to God's enemy, Satan. And as a result, the theocracy was now lost as the form of God's government or rule over planet earth. Here is a second tragic consequence of man doing that. Satan thereby usurped the tenant possession or administration of the world system. And the scriptures reveal that Satan and his forces have been dominating and controlling the world system ever since. They're doing it in the world today. That's ultimately why the world is in a grand mess it's in today. How do we know that this tragic transition took place? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would please, to Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where you have the record of all the temptations that Satan directed at Jesus while Jesus was here in the world. Luke chapter 4, and we'll begin with verse 5. And the devil, taking him, referring to Jesus, up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Notice Satan had the ability in visionary form to cause a vision of the whole world system to pass before the Lord Jesus, of all the kingdoms here upon planet earth, human kings upon planet earth. And notice verse 6, the devil said unto him, all this power, oh, there's the word power again, the authority to rule. All this power will I give you, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. Literally, it has been handed over to me. Satan is saying, do you know, somebody handed over to me the power to exercise rule over the whole world system here upon planet Earth. Who did that? Adam did. Because Adam was the one to whom God originally entrusted the administration of God's rule over this planet to mankind. And whether Adam recognized or not, when he defected from God, followed Satan's lead, he was handing over tenant possession of planet Earth to God's enemy, Satan. And Satan's been dominated ever since. And then Satan says, to whomsoever I will, I give it. Jesus, all I have to do, fall down, worship me, and I'll give you the tenant possession of the whole world system. This is why Jesus, several times when he was here, for example, John 14, verse 30, called Satan the prince of this world, literally the ruler of this world. This is why John in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 
says the whole world lies in wickedness. That could literally be translated, the whole world lies in the wicked one, referring to Satan. This is why James, in James chapter 4 and verse 4, warns people, you'd better not love the world system in which you live, in the sense of selling yourself out to it wholesale. Because whoever does that makes himself the enemy of God. The reason is because God's enemy, Satan, is dominating the world and ruling the world system right now. He usurped that tenant possession away from man by getting man to defect from God and join in with him in rebellion against God. Now, here's another tragic consequence. Because that transition took place, God put a curse upon all of nature, upon all of nature. Got to make things more difficult for man here upon planet Earth. Put a curse upon all of nature. We have the record of that in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, where God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground for your sake. From now on, it will be by the sweat of your face that you'll till the soil of the earth to grow food to sustain life. And the earth will give forth such difficult things as thorns and thistles, which will make your work of growing food to sustain life more difficult. Not only did God put a curse upon the soil of the earth, I take it that radically reduced the fertility level of the soil of the earth from what it was from the time of creation until man joined Satan's revolt against God. But God also put a curse upon the whole animal realm. Now animals became wild. You know, when you read the last several verses of Genesis 1, God created the animals to be uh, vegetable eaters, not flesh eaters. But now animal nature became radically changed. Now many animals became carnivorous, flesh-eating, tear each other's flesh as a source of food. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, all of creation was subjected to vanity. Not of its own choosing. Nature didn't ask to be put under this curse, but it was subjected to it nonetheless. Because Adam, the first man, sold tenant possession to God's enemy, Satan. And Paul goes on to say that the whole of creation groans and travails in pain. It can hardly wait until the ultimate ray of redemption. When this curse of man's sin will be lifted off of nature. And nature restored back to the way it was before the fall of man took place. Horrible, horrible, tragic consequences of man by defecting from God, selling out man's tenant possession of planet Earth to God's enemy, Satan. And God's enemy is still dominating, controlling that world system in this day and age in which you and I are now living. Now, Lord willing, tomorrow morning we're going to pick up and see other parallel principles between God's program of land redemption for Israel on the one hand and God's program of earth redemption for mankind on the other hand. And all this has tremendous significance. So what is that sealed scroll that was in God's hand? That only the Redeemer, the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, was worthy to take that sealed scroll, break its seals, open up and read it. And we're going to see that is what unleashes everything from chapter 6 through the end of the book of Revelation, the sealed scroll has that significance. Lord willing, we'll see more of that tomorrow.